1: This podcast deals with true crime. I will be speaking frankly and openly about crimes such as murder, rape, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. I've told you before, and I'll tell you again. The strong survive and the weak disappear. We do not intend to disappear. There's an old saying that says the absolute power corrupts absolutely, but is it the actual power, or trying to hold on to it, that is what truly corrupts? What if your power comes from looking out for the little guy, and with that power you were able to bring a country to bear by affecting its economy? Would you think that that might make you some pretty powerful enemies? Then what would you do to keep said enemies at bay? There's another famous saying that says that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, what if that quote-unquote friend is organized crime? Would you get in league with criminals to protect yourself from world leaders? As we all know, friendship with organized crime comes with expectations. But you'd be doing it to make sure that the common man could live the American dream. There's one last saying that says that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. For one man, these sayings never rang truer. He spent his career working for the rights of American workers, made powerful enemies, got in bed with the mafia. Then in one day in 1975, he disappeared, never to be seen again. Tonight on the True Crime Truckers podcast, I bring you The Disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. James Riddle Hoffa was born in Brazil, Indiana on February 14, 1913, to John and Viola Hoffa. His father died in 1920 when Hoffa was seven years old. The family moved to Detroit in 1924, where Hoffa lived the rest of his life. Hoffa left school at the age of 14 and began working full-time manual labor jobs to help support his family.
2: He literally came from nowhere and created a dynasty. He was a charismatic man, a powerful man, a tell-it-like-it-was-in-your-face type guy.
1: Hoffa began union organizational work at the grassroots level through his employment as a teenager with a grocery chain, a job which paid substandard wages and offered poor working conditions with minimal job security. The workers were displeased with the situation and tried to organize a union to better their lot. There he orchestrated his first labor strike, helping his co-workers land a better contract. He used a newly arrived shipment of strawberries as a bargaining chip. The workers wouldn't unload until they had a new deal. Although Hoffa was young, his bravery and approachability in this role impressed fellow workers, and he rose to a leadership position.
3: I have more fun here working than anybody can have on a golf course or any sport you can make. By
1: 1932, after defiantly refusing to work for an abusive shift foreman who inspired Hoffa's long career of organizing workers, he left the grocery chain, in part because of his union activities. Hoffa was then invited to become an organizer with the local 299 of the Teamsters in Detroit. He eventually became the president of the union's Detroit chapter. Ambitious and aggressive, Hoffa worked hard to expand the union's membership and negotiate better contracts for his constituents by any means necessary. Hoffa worked to defend the Teamsters' unions from raids by other unions, including the CIO, and extended the Teamsters' influence in the Midwestern states. From the late 1930s to the late 1940s, he then rose to lead the combined group of Detroit area locals shortly afterwards, and advanced to become the head of the Michigan Teamsters group sometime later. During this time, Hoffa obtained a deferment from military service in World War II by successfully making a case for his Union leadership skills being more of a value to the nation by keeping freight running smoothly to assist the war effort.
3: My ethics, very simple. Live and let live, and those who try to destroy you, make it your business to see that they don't and that they have problems. At the
1: 1952 IBT convention, that's the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, in Los Angeles, Hoffa was selected as the national vice president by incoming president Dave Beck successor to Daniel J. Tobin, who had been the president since 1907. Hoffa had quelled an internal revolt against Tobin by securing central states' regional support for Beck at the convention. In exchange, Beck made Hoffa a vice president. The IBT moved its headquarters from Indianapolis to Washington, D.C., taking over a large office building in the Capitol in 1955. IBT staff was also enlarged during this period, with many lawyers hired to assist with contract negotiations. Following his 1952 election as vice president, Hoffa began spending more of his time away from Detroit, either in Washington or traveling around the country for his expanded responsibilities. Hoffa took over the presidency of Teamsters in 1957 at the convention in Miami Beach, Florida. His predecessor, Beck, had appeared before the John Little McClellan-led U.S. Senate Select Committee on Improper Activities in Labor or Management Field in March of 1957 and took the Fifth Amendment 140 times in response to questions. Beck was under indictment when the IBT convention took place and was convicted and imprisoned in a trial for fraud held in Seattle. Hoffa himself was the subject of numerous investigations, but managed to avoid prosecution for many years.
3: I don't agree with you, Senator, that I don't have a right as American citizen to be found innocent by a jury because it don't please certain people in this country. I have a perfect right to be found innocent, I hope, as an American citizen in this country, and I shouldn't be criticized, in my opinion, for doing whatever was necessary during the course of that trial to be able to prove that I was not guilty, even though certain individuals on this committee, one individual, did his utmost to convict me of something that the jury found me innocent of.
4: In connection with that, Mr. Hoffa, where did you get the money that you paid to Mr. Chastey?
3: Excuse uh, just me, a please. May I talk to my counsel, please? Yes. Uh, Mr. Chairman, we will not go into that. I'm not going I'm into not the merits go.
4: of the case. I just wanted to find out where he got the money. He paid him some uh, money for a legal fee or for whatever reason he paid him. I'd like to find out where he got the money. We couldn't find it in any of the books or records.
3: Mr. Chairman, I don't think
4: this witness has to sit here and hear
3: well, I, that's verdicts of guilty pronounced upon him by a legislative committee when a court has fully tried this case and a jury acquitted him, I don't think it's proper to retry
4: that case here. That's I object to this line of inquiry. object to the last question for Pound. The
1: 1957 AFL-CIO convention held in Atlantic City, New Jersey, voted by a ratio of nearly 5 to 1 to expel the IBT from the larger union group. President George Meany gave an emotional speech advocating the removal of the IBT and stating that he could only agree to further affiliation of the Teamsters if they would dismiss Hoffa as their president. Meany demanded a response from Hoffa, who replied through the press, quote, we'll see. At the time, IBT was bringing over $750,000 annually to the AFL-CIO.
2: I've had the impression from some of the things I've read that your mother ran a pretty taut ship and she uh, sure did she was uh, just as apt to give you a slap across the mouth if you got out of line as she was to say uh, go blow your nose
3: she held things under control and she brought us up the way she believed was right and out of all of the the problems that we had I think that when you look back she kept us on the right road
2: was she the one that uh, Suggested that you shouldn't drink and you shouldn't smoke. I mean, is it No,
3: never suggested. I just never, I th- uh, never discussed it. In fact, my mother never drank. Uh, neither of my sisters nor my brother.
2: Well, I knew you didn't smoke and you didn't drink, and I, I just wondered if this was a carryover. Well, my package. mother never
3: drank nor smoked. Uh, my brothers sm- smokes but don't drink. Neither of my sisters either, either smoke nor drink.
2: Jim, if you don't smoke and you don't drink, and you don't play around, play around at golf. What do you do for entertainment?
3: Right here, work. This is entertainment? Seven days a week I have more fun here working than anybody can have on a golf course or any sport you can make. Every minute here is something new, something keeps you alert, as, because you're competing with the best brains in the United States. But with this kind
2: of entertainment, how many days a year do you get at home?
3: I get home now since I've been in Washington on average once a month. I try to get home at least once to one weekend a month. Jimmy, one reporter who
2: took a very long look at Hoffa suggested that in a choice between power and money, he'd always choose power. Was he right?
3: Not for myself. I would not. I don't need any additional power than I have. But if it came to a question of power as against money, certainly I would select power. Because out of having additional power, it gives us the ability to get for our members additional economic gains nobody in this country respects what's weak you believe me if you see a beggar on a corner with his hat in his hand nobody respects him dress the same man up give him an air of dignity and he can command respect the same thing applies to this union If we lived in a basement instead of this magnificent building here and we were broke and had no money, instead of the money we have today, employers would be prone to fight us. But because we are financially solid, because we do have an organization that is equipped to handle any situation that comes in front of us, we're successful in getting from the employers what our members want and need without strikes.
1: Following his re-election as president in 1961, Hoffa worked to expand the Union. In 1964, he succeeded in bringing virtually all the -the over-the-road truck drivers in North America under a single National Master Freight Agreement, in what may have been the biggest achievement in a lifetime of Union activity.
4: At the 1957 convention held in Miami Beach, Florida, James Riddle Hoffa was elected general president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Life changed dramatically for the Teamsters when he came in. For instance, um, we had no dignity,
3: uh, we had no pensions, we have no health and welfare fund.
4: And most of all, we were split in all different veins because we didn't have a master freight agreement. In one thousand nine hundred and sixty four Hoffa negotiated the first national master freight agreement, and overnight four hundred thousand members employed by sixteen thousand trucking companies joined the middle class
3: When that went into effect, we started getting substantial raises of twenty five cents forty cents fifty cents. these were unheard of in the past. these were the glory years for the teams as we really came up. And I believe at that time our membership uh, expanded to over
4: 2 million people under Jimmy. This agreement was Hoffa's crowning achievement and would set the standard for collective bargaining all over the country.
1: Hoffa then tried to bring the airline workers and other transport employees into the union with limited success. Both the FBI and the U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy kept a close eye on Hoffa believing that he advanced himself and his union with assistance from organized crime. Kennedy pursued the strongest attack on organized crime that the country had ever seen and carried on with the so-called, quote, Get Hoffa squad of prosecutors and investigators.
3: I am not controlled by him, but by the same token, I do not intend to go around and abuse the provisions of the Constitution of the International Union of which you accuse Mr. Beck of doing by having dictatorial powers. Now I want to be able to follow the Constitution in due time. You can this call. situation will be cleared up. If you recall I took office almost uh, just about February one. I went through a long trial in New York, which tied me up. I had to question the monitors, which tied me up, and I haven't had much opportunity to do the normal duties that would have taken place if all of the various incidents hadn't came about uh, during my period, short period of time as general president. In due time, these situations will be cleared up. Mr.
4: Hopper. that would make a great deal of sense. (laughs) I'd be very sympathetic if it wasn't for the fact that a majority of these people are in the central states conference, and the people under your jurisdiction. You've got people in Detroit, at least fifteen who have, have police records. You've got Joey Glimco in Chicago. I say you're not tough enough to get rid of these people. Then you're in with every gangster and hooligan in the United States.
3: I know a lot of people. In the you're United in with states.
4: every place that you go. You're associated with the leading gangsters and and uh, Mr. Kennedy, racketeers in the United States, Mr. and it's Kennedy. not so shocking that you should be involved. And taking the greenleaf money mr kennedy it is shocking
3: to even involve a man with that kind of blood paint money and i don't go for that mr kennedy well, i don't go for that kind of action well then you
4: could have uh, arranged that not going for that kind of action by disassociating yourself many years ago from joe costello Why, you could have done it from mr. john vitality every place you go we've checked your telephone numbers you're calling every gangster in the united states mr kennedy
3: what has happened have, maybe in you the you past have. life of people today may be different.
4: You've got Lieutenant Scholder's son working for the Teamsters Union. In they Stangler. may be nice people today. You, know, you don't give them a chance to prove they're nice. They may be nice people.
1: The Justice Department indicted Hoffa several times, but they failed to win their cases against the popular labor leader. In March 1964, however, the prosecution scored a victory against Hoffa he was found guilty of bribery and jury tampering in connection with his 1962 federal trial for conspiracy. That July, Hoffa suffered another blow. He was convicted of misusing funds from the union's pension plan. During this period, he was facing immense personal strain as he was under investigation, on trial, launching appeals of convictions, or imprisoned for virtually all of the 1960s.
3: The statement I have to make today is a statement for the citizens of the United States. And I say that in my 51 years of being associated with organized labor, dealing with the population throughout the entire United States and almost every conceivable size city there is, I have never witnessed anything in my life such as what has been going on here the last eight weeks. An atmosphere of fear. An atmosphere created by the United States Marshals, by the FBI, and the government as a whole for the sole purpose of intimidating, harassing, and trying to frighten citizens of the United States from being able to properly defend themselves in a court of law. I hope that all of the citizens of the United States will take heed that in the city of Chattanooga, Tennessee, you are witnessing the destruction of the court as we know it, guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States and the Congress of the United States. I have been sentenced. I will appeal. I am not guilty. And I say to the millions of members of organized labor, have heed, because those who fight for you and fight to win will find that out of this conviction, the zeal of Attorney General Robert Kennedy will be to destroy you unless you give in. And I urge you not to give in and to fight in true tradition of organized labor and not be frightened, because somebody believes that they are superior to the Constitution of the United States.
1: Hoffa was reelected without opposition to a third five-year term as president of the IBT, despite having been convicted of jury tampering and mail fraud. In court verdicts that were stayed pending review on appeal, delegates in Miami Beach also elected Frank Fitzsimmons as the vice president to become president, quote, if Hoffa has to serve jail time, unquote. Hoffa spent three years appealing his convictions, but the efforts proved fruitless. He began serving a possible 13-year prison sentence in 1967. Just before he entered prison, Hoffa appointed Frank Fitzsimmons as acting Teamsters president. Fitzsimmons was a Hoffa loyalist, fellow Detroit resident, and a longtime member of Teamsters Local 299, who owed his own high position in large part to Hoffa's influence. Despite this, Fitzsimmons soon distanced himself from Hoffa's influence and control after 1967 to Hoffa's displeasure. Fitzsimmons also decentralized power somewhat within the IBT's administration structure, foregoing much of the control Hoffa took advantage of as union president.
5: Imprisoned Teamster President Jimmy Hoffa has made his second
1: bid for parole
5: after serving four years of a 13-year sentence for mail fraud and jury tampering. David Schumacher was on hand this afternoon when the Parole Board announced its decision in Washington. The United States Board of Parole announced today that Mr. James R. Hoffa's application for parole has been denied. The Parole Board's decision surprised some. Mostly Republican appointees, the Board was, according to reports always denied, subjected to intense political pressure. However, the board made its decision quickly after hearing an appeal earlier in the day from Hoffa's son and daughter. Your father
2: would be out uh, by now, or he's someone other than uh, Jimmy Hoffa? Well, that's a very difficult question. Uh, All I know is today that we were here on the merits. We reviewed the case and the the facts that he has been a model prisoner. Uh, He has uh, 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 has been at Lewisburg for over four years now, and uh, we have put all of the The factual matters before the board, and we have expressed our great need and great desire that he be reunited with his family in the very near
4: future.
3: I expressed the family's viewpoints and our very serious concern for my mother.
0: The doctor has said that she could die any moment, and she is in very, very serious condition. She is under constant care, and she loves my father very much, and when you separated them, this
4: was a very, very big
5: blow to her health problem. But Hoffa must spend at least another 14 months here at the federal penitentiary at Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Each evening, he's permitted a phone call to his wife, who is hospitalized in California with a heart condition. There's nothing in the Teamsters Union bylaws to prevent Hoffa from seeking re-election this summer, but now his control of the union is expected to be challenged. The Nixon administration carefully kept hands off the case, and a source close to the parole board says that the little maneuvering there was came as much from Hoffa's enemies as from his friends.
1: Hoffa's sentence was commuted by President Richard Nixon on December 23, 1971, less than five years to do his 13-year sentence. Hoffa was released from prison with President Nixon commuted his sentence to a time served. As a condition, Nixon banned Hoffa from holding leadership position in the Union until 1980. The IBT endorsed President Nixon, a Republican, in his presidential reelection bid in 1972. In prior elections, the Union had supported Democratic nominees, but had also endorsed Nixon in 1960. Suspicion was soon raised of a deal for Hoffa's release connected with the IBT's support of Nixon. It was alleged that a large sum of money, estimated to be as high as $1 million, was paid secretly to Nixon. Evidence was also alleged of a secret bribe paid in 1960. Hoffa was awarded a Teamsters pension of $1.7 million, delivered in a one-time lump sum payment. This type of pension settlement had not occurred before with the Teamsters. Hoffa wasted no time trying to fight that ban in court. And work behind the scenes to regain control of the Teamsters.
3: Uh, wait till all the fellas get here. There's some between arrows between floors here. Okay. okay. No use you. <laughs> a second. I'll get down. The purpose of the meeting with Mr. Hausner was to go over the details of my requirements by the probation Department concerning travel, employment and the general activities while I'm on parole. So
0: that's management, and that's as far as you understand? Well,
4: it's not terminology
3: management is not cleared, and we have asked Mr. Hosner to find out. What is the word indirect mean? Does
5: it's, that mean tomorrow occur here? Yes, kind of uh, it's so broad a, that
3: we do not have a description of what indirect means. Are there any restrictions on your ability to travel, sir? You can travel anywhere within the Eastern District, outside of the Eastern District. I have to make a request specifically each time and gain approval to be able to travel outside the Eastern District.
2: Are there any limitations on personal appearances at all?
3: No. none.
0: Mr. Hoffman, at this point, did you discuss at all the problem of your associations, for example, since your wife is still salaried with the Teamsters and associations as that, Did they discuss it Well, of
3: course, we discussed the total question of association for personal reasons other than discuss union management business directly or indirectly. And there were no restrictions, discussion, having general discussions. But there is a question, as I said before, on what does the word indirect mean?
4: And that would be difficult, of course, to study. I I don't even know what it means. I'd have have to find out. uh, (laughs) (laughs) It could mean
3: anything. You know what I mean? Do you
5: consider these uh, restrictions to be reasonable?
3: If they're the restrictions that I'm required to have for the next period of time, I will comply with them regardless of what I may think.
1: While glad to regain his freedom, Hoffa was very disappointed with the condition imposed on his release by President Nixon. He accused senior Nixon administration figures, including Attorney General John N. Mitchell and White House Special Counsel Charles Colson, of depriving him of his rights. Mitchell and Coulson both denied this. It was likely imposed upon Hoffa as a result of requests from the Teamsters' leadership, although Fitzsimmons also denied this. Hoffa sued to invalidate the non-participation restriction in order to reassert his power over the Teamsters. John Dean, former White House counsel to President Nixon, was among those called upon for depositions in 1974 court proceedings. Dean, who had become famous as a government witness in prosecutions arising from the Watergate scandal by mid-1973, had drafted the non-participation clause in 1971 at Nixon's request. Hoffa ultimately lost his court battle since the court ruled that Nixon had acted within his powers by imposing the restriction as it was based on Hoffa's misconduct while serving as Teamsters' official. Hoffa faced immense resistance to his reestablishment of power from many corners and had lost much of his earlier support, even in the Detroit area. As a result, he intended to begin his comeback at the local level with the Local 299 in Detroit, where he retained some influence. In 1975, Hoffa was working on an autobiography titled Hoffa, The Real Story, which was published a few months after his disappearance. He had earlier published a book titled The Trials of Jimmy Hoffa in 1970. (laughs) Hoffa had made more than his fair share of enemies It is believed that one of his foes May have had a hand in his disappearance in 1975
2: My father, James R. Hoffa Has been missing for some 32 hours He left for an appointment At Max's Red Fox restaurant At approximately 1.30pm Wednesday, July 30, 1975 He called home at approximately 2.15pm We have not heard from him since
1: Hoffa disappeared sometime after 2.45 p.m. on July 30, 1975, from the parking lot of the Red Fox restaurant in Bloomfield Township, a suburb of Detroit. He had told others he was going there to meet with two mafia leaders, Anthony Giacalone and Anthony Provenzano. The get-together was supposed to be about settling a feud. Provenzano was also a teamster leader in New Jersey, and had earlier been close to Hoffa. Provenzano was a national vice president with the IBT from 1961, Hoffa's second term as Teamster president. Hoffa arrived at around 2 o'clock, and after waiting nearly 30 minutes, he called his wife and told her that he would wait a few more minutes. A truck driver claimed to have recognized Hoffa in the backseat of a car that almost hit his truck as it left the restaurant parking lot. He also saw a large object covered with a gray blanket on the seat between Hoffa and another passenger. Hoffa's wife reported him missing that evening. Police found his car at the restaurant, unlocked, but there was no indication of what had happened to him.
2: At the present time, we have no information as to the present whereabouts of Mr. Hoffa. We have no information that he is living or dead. I think, uh, as of with the passage of time, I think it's quite conceivable that there is a little feeling that uh, maybe there's uh, a possibility that he may not resurface again.
1: Years of extensive investigation involving numerous law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, gave no definite conclusion. Gia Colon and Provenzana, who denied having a scheduled meeting with Hoffa, were found not to have been near the restaurant that afternoon. Hoffa was declared legally dead on July thirtieth, nineteen eighty two, and the case continues to be the subject of rumor and speculation. Since nineteen seventy five, the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa has been the subject of countless theories. Some say he was done in by organized crime or even federal agents. In nineteen eighty nine, Kenneth Walton the head of the FBI Detroit's office told the Detroit News that he knew what had happened to Hoffa. Quote, I'm comfortable, I know who did it, but it's never going to be prosecuted because we would have to divulge informants' confidential sources. Unquote. In 2001, the FBI matched DNA from Hoffa's hair taken from a brush with a strand of hair found in a 1975 Mercury marquee driven by longtime friend Charles Chucky O'Brien. Police and Hoffa's family had long believed O'Brien played a role in Hoffa's disappearance. O'Brien, however, had previously denied ever being involved in Hoffa's disappearance or that Hoffa had ever been a passenger in his car. Giant Stadium, where Hoffa was rumored to be buried, was scanned with ground-penetrating radar to see if any disturbances were present that would indicate a human body had been buried there. They found no trace of any human remains. No human remains were found when Giant Stadium was demolished in 2010. In the book, I Heard You Paint Houses, Frank the Irishman Sheeran and the Closing of the Case of Jimmy Hoffa, author Charles Brandt claims that Frank Sheeran, a professional killer for the mob and longtime friend of Hoffa, confessed to assassinating him. According to Brant, O'Brien drove Sheeran, Hoffa, and fellow mobster Sal Brigulio to a house in Detroit. He claimed that while O'Brien and Brigulio drove off, Sheeran and Hoffa went into the house, where Sheeran claims that he shot Hoffa twice behind the right ear. Sheeran says that he was told that Hoffa was cremated after the murder, Sheeran also confessed to reporters that he murdered Hoffa. Blood found in the Detroit house where Sheeran claimed the murder happened was determined not to be Hoffa's. On June 16, 2006, the Detroit Free Press published in its entirety the so-called Hoffax Memo. A 56-page report the FBI prepared for a January 1976 briefing on the case at the FBI headquarters in Washington. Although not claiming to conclusively establish the specifics of his disappearance, the memo indicates that law enforcement's belief is that Hoffa was murdered at the behest of organized crime figures who deemed his efforts to regain power within the Teamsters was a threat to their control of the union's pension fund. The FBI had called the report the definitive account of what agents believe happened to Hoffa. In the book, The Iceman, Confessions of a Mafia Contract Killer, Richard Kuklinski claimed to know the fate of Hoffa. His body was placed in a 50-gallon drum and set on fire for a half hour or so. Then the drum was welded shut and buried in a junkyard. Later, according to Kuklinski, an accomplice started to talk to federal authorities and there was a fear that he would use the information to try to get out of trouble the drum was dug up, placed in the trunk of a car, and compacted into a 4 by 2 foot rectangular cuboid. It was sold along with hundreds of other compacted cars as a scrap metal. It was shipped off to Japan to be used in making new cars.
4: Hoffa? Yeah. I don't
5: know anything about Hoffa. Jimmy
4: Hoffa. Or oh, the scuttlebutt, let's, let's put it that way.
5: scuttle buddies in a Japanese car supposedly was picked up, put in a drum, put in the trunk of a car, put in a crusher with other cars, crushed, and shipped overseas. That's what I heard. Don't know.
4: I think the last time I asked you that, you thought he was a uh, Toyota.
1: Could be
5: a Toyota. Some little
1: Japanese car. In 2012... Roseville, Michigan police took samples from the ground under a suburban Detroit driveway after a person reported witnessing the burial of a body at the time of Hoffa's 1975 disappearance. Tests by Michigan State University anthropologists found no signs of human remains.
6: Hey, Glenda, wild day here in Roseville and the drama is already over. The drilling began this morning here at that shed right behind me here at Florida. and Kelly, engineers from the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality drilling through the concrete. Tubes were brought through the ground into the soil. They went down about six and a half feet. Two samples were taken and Roseville's police chief says there was nothing exceptionally visible except a lot of dirt. No visible sign of human remains. This all started because of a tipster who came forward to say he saw a body buried here under the driveway here at this home at Florida and Kelly. He believes it could be legendary Teamsters boss Jimmy Hoffa because he witnessed the burial on the day of or day after Hoffa's disappearance back in 1975. Police believe the tipster is credible that at the very least he saw something, but they doubt it's Hoffa's remains here, even if there are remains found.
1: In January 2013, reputed gangster Tony Zarelli implied that Hoffa was originally buried in a shallow grave with the plan that his remains would later be moved to a second location. Zarelli contends that these plans were abandoned and Hoffa remains in a field in northern Oakland County, not far from the residence where he was last seen. Zarelli denied any responsibility for or association with Hoffa's disappearance. On June 17, 2013, the Zarelli information led to a property in Oakland Township in northern Oakland County, owned by Detroit mob boss Jack Tacoco. After three days, the FBI called off the dig. No human remains were found, and the case remains open.
0: We'll take a look over here. You can see they are still working right here on Buell Road at Adams. The FBI has been out here since about eight o'clock this morning. They're using a backhoe, shovels, and some other high-tech equipment. They're searching an area that's about 10 by 20 feet. They are hoping to find the remains of Jimmy Hoffa out here. Now the former Teamsters president, as you know, vanished back in 1975 after heading to a meeting with some Mafia members in Bluefield Township. This land here used to belong to suspected Detroit crime boss. Jack A tip from an alleged mob leader, Anthony Zarelli, led them to this site. He is selling a manuscript, and in that manuscript, he says Hoffa was killed here at this property. Zarelli alleges Hoffa was buried underneath a cement slab in an old barn. That barn is no longer standing, but that's what you can see. That's the site where the barn was. That's where they're looking right over there. Now, the search is going to go at least until dark tonight, and of course, they're going to resume again tomorrow at Last Check. They had not found what they were hoping to find. But everybody out here is hoping, of course, to finally bring some closure to the Hoffa family. Reporting live in Oakland Township, I'm Heather Catallo, 7 Action News.
1: There are many theories on what actually happened to Jimmy Hoffa. I think the simplest answer is the correct one. The mob killed Hoffa to keep him from regaining control of the Teamsters. Hoffa was hard for the mafia to keep under control, whereas Hoffa's successor, Frank Fitzsimmons, was firmly under their thumb. Also, if Hoffa succeeded in winning back the presidency of the Teamsters, it would bring back unwanted attention to the ties of the unions and organized crime. I believe that on July 30th, 1975, Hoffa went to meet with Anthony Giacalone and Anthony Provenzano. Instead, Chucky O'Brien showed up and told him that they had moved the meeting and O'Brien would take him there. Hoffa got in O'Brien's car and they drove to another location. There, I believe that Frank, the Irishman Sheeran, was waiting. More than likely, he did in fact shoot Hoffa twice in the back of the head. As far as what happened to Hoffa's remains, I believe he was either cremated and his bones smashed into pieces, or he was dissolved in a vat of acid. Either way, I don't believe that there is a body left to be uncovered. And so, for now, it seems like a mystery, which will never be solved. You can contact me at truecrimetruckerspodcast at gmail.com, or join the Facebook group at True Crime Truckers Podcast. You can now also follow me on Instagram at michaelprit 81 Thanks for listening. I will return in two weeks with another case to present. Until then, stay safe.